Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 2nd, 2016, and my guest is Leo Katz, the Frank Carano Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Our topic for today is his book, written and published in 2011, Why is the Law So Perverse? Leo, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, this is an utterly fascinating and challenging book. It's full of logic puzzles, incredible insights about law, collective choice, and I want to warn parents who might be listening with young children, we may get into some adult topics. Uh, we're going to start with some examples of what you mean by perverse, why the law is perverse. And I want to start with the kidney club. How would a kidney club work? Yeah, um, some some time ago, a, a philosopher had the, uh, the idea there's this a shortage of kidneys. Um, and, uh, you know, people are put on waiting lists and they sometimes – you know, don't don't get a kidney in time, um, and uh, then he thought, well, well, what what if um, a whole bunch of people uh, who were uh, worried, uh, they presently didn't have any kidney problems, but worried that in the future they might have, and they would like, um, uh, they want to make sure that there's somebody available who might donate a kidney to them. Um, why not form something called a kidney club uh, where everybody agrees that if somebody falls ill and needs a kidney, uh, a lottery will be held and uh, somebody will, by that lottery, be designated as the donor. Now, of course, you know, we each have two kidneys. That's why we're able to give up uh, one of our kidneys. Um, and it's uh, it apparently, uh, so I've read, uh, has relatively little deleterious effect on the health of the donor. Um, it, it's it's um, uh, in, in, in particular, one might think, well, two, two kidneys don't function as well as, as – one kidney doesn't function as well as two. Apparently, that's not the case. Uh, or one might think, that's well – the risk of – the operation's not a pleasant The operation is not risk pleasant, of complications. but for instance, you might think, well, what if one kidney uh, 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 goes bad? Don't you want to have a reserve as a second? And it turns out that if you get kidney disease, it usually affects both kidneys. So it's not even as though, you know, giving up that spare kidney or – giving up too much. So it's not, you know, it still is a thing. And I'm in the kidney club. I'm in the kidney club. Well, that, so if I that, lose that, that, that kidney, I can so get you, another one. So you join this <laughs> kidney club and you have as a downside, you might be designated to be a donor. Uh, but it's a, you know, it's not a huge downside, though not a significant yeah. one. But on the plus side, if you need a kidney and you would die if you don't get a donation or you would be a uh, you know, you, you, you'd be limited to dialysis, which has significant downsides. Uh, you're protected against that because there's a donor. So it seems like it's eminently desirable or lots of people might want to join such a kidney club because it's a bargain that they, you know, that everybody's going to benefit from. They, they give up a little bit, this risk of having to be a donor. And in return, they receive this tremendous insurance that if they ever need a kidney, they'll, they'll get one. Um, the puzzle with that is, although people might want to enter into this kidney club, um, the law almost certainly wouldn't enforce such an arrangement. Uh, 
Uh, and even as a matter of morality, I think we actually feel a bit askance. I mean, we, we feel uneasy about it. We feel uneasy about people entering into the bargain, and even more so if we now imagine you know, the, the, uh, the, the lottery is held, somebody is designated, at this point he balks and he wants to back out. Yeah, uh, I don't like the club anymore, says that person. Right. right? It's kind of, you see the temptation. Right, right. <laughs> I want to quit. I want to quit the club. Uh, well, clearly, you know, these bargains are not going to work uh, if we know that someone suddenly can just back out of it when, when he's the one who's, who's designated. Um, so the only way in which such a club is going to work is if we kind of all lock ourselves in and, uh, you know, uh, make a commitment that if somebody at the last minute uh, tries to back out, he's, well, he's forced to comply. Maybe he's held down uh, and, and, um, and, and, uh, anesthetized and, and one kidney extracted. Um, Indeed, when everybody is told about this in advance, think about it, and it, this is not going to work unless we all make this ironclad commitment, even a commitment to be held down, um, you know, everybody sees the point of that and uh, is willing to do that because although that's an unfortunate thing to have to undergo, it's counterbalanced by the benefit they foresee from, from the insurance they receive to and get you, a kidney. And you agreed? And you agreed in advance voluntarily, which is, I think, the, you know, as an economist, my temptation is to say, you thought this was a good deal. Right. We understand that every realization in life may not turn out to be such a good deal, but you, under in sane mind, made the decision to be in the club. And when the outcome turned against you, you, you can't cheat. You got to, the law should enforce that deal, but the law you're saying does not enforce that. Well, and what's most, most striking, right? None of the, uh, there are sort of some standard, uh, Situations where both law and morality agree that bargains shouldn't be enforced when, you know, the parties aren't competent or somehow don't know what they're doing or there's a problem with maybe a problem with bargaining power Decep or deception. there's duress or deception. You know, none of that is present here, right? These are uh, uh, people who are perfectly sound mind entering into a bargain that we completely understand rational people would want to enter into. Um, uh, no, it, it's not even the case as with some bargains where we sort of think, well, almost anybody who wants to enter into this he's, he can't be of sound mind, even if they looked like that, because that's such a crazy bargain. But this is a, this doesn't seem like that. It seems like a really rational arrangement that rational people might want to enter into. And yet, and yet, I think we all intuitively balk at enforcing it. But more importantly, it's pretty clear that the law wouldn't. Uh, and you give the general you give the general example the, of, the general the general uh, these rule kind of actually about the law is it doesn't it, the situation doesn't even have to be as extreme as a kidney contract uh, but but in any kind of contract when you commit to doing something and you later on try to back out the law will not as they put it specifically enforce your promise they'll force you to pay damages for not honoring the contract but they won't actually you know have the sheriff at gunpoint, as it were, uh, enforce it or allow others, other parties to the contract to enforce it. I mean, there was a once upon a time, some specific performance was allowed, uh, the you know famous indentured servant arrangements that were entered into in the 19th century or the 18th century, whereby people were brought as domestic servants uh, from the old world to the new. Uh, those were actually contracts in which that could be specifically and enforced so that if the domestic servant who was brought from England to the United States then fled, um, he he uh, could be forced to return to his position and 
you know, uh, serve out his serve out his term. And it was actually something that everybody understood was necessary for these contracts to work because the domestic servant wouldn't have any money to pay damages. So the only way in which anybody would be willing to enter into a contract to bring a domestic servant to the new world would be if he got this kind of commitment. Uh, and yet they came to be regarded as repugnant. We can't have indentured servitude now. We can't have any kind of commitment that would involve specifically enforcing a contract as opposed to trying to extract damages from a person. So you you give the example of uh, someone uh, contracts to have their portrait painted. Yeah, right. And if the artist says, you know, I don't like you or I changed my mind or I'm too busy now. Or and I like the portrait so much portrait, I want to keep it. I don't want to give Correct. turn it over to you. Yeah, he's free to do that. And, and when I tell this, having read your book, when I give this example to people, they say, well, of course they can't enforce that because you could do a bad job. But that, the court could enforce that too, just like we do all the time. The court could say you did not put good effort in. This doesn't seem consistent with your other paintings. You, you clearly did not fulfill the contract and do it again. The, it the, doesn't the, do that. There, there's, <laughs> there's that, but then there's, there's another difficulty that is, is maybe, maybe more fundamental. It's one thing to say, well, uh, you know, it, it's pointless to try to specifically enforce it because it's too hard to make sure that somebody does a good job. But uh, think about the person who wants it enforced. Uh, he's usually, he understands, you know, he, the, the, the domestic Correct. servant may be surly and the portrait may be bad, but for whatever reason, he's actually happy to, he just, just as soon have half a loaf than none. So he's all right with it. So it's true. We might say we don't force you to accept specific performance because it's an inferior thing and you should be entitled to get money instead. But if you're the beneficiary and you say, actually, I prefer specific performance under these circumstances, I don't view it as, as good as money, even though it's going to be an inferior performance and maybe the court can't make sure that it's up to snuff, but I'm okay with that. Then that argument, of course, is irrelevant. And the mystery is why can't he insist on it, especially if the so other like, party in advance was willing to sign up for that? A another version, as it were, of the um, uh, of the kidney club problem. In some ways, I view it as, as even more perplexing uh, because the appeal of the bargain is so strong, and yet our aversion to enforcing it is, is even stronger, even stronger than in the kidney case, is the example with which I actually opened the book. Um, uh, I imagine somebody proposing a dramatically newfangled way of reducing the costs of imprisonment and the costs of punishment by reintroducing um, what he calls voluntary torture. He uh, makes it possible to anybody confined for a long term to, uh, if he wants to, submit in the alternative to a much shorter term of confinement or maybe just a very brief one during which he will have something extremely painful, some extremely painful treatment administered to him. In other words, some form of, some form of torture. And um, will we'll make it ever so marginally more attractive than serving out the 30-year sentence, marginally, so that he's induced to engage in it, but we don't get much of a reduction in terms of, you know, deterrence and retribution and whatever other objectives we're pursuing with the punishment, presumably we could achieve through torture as well. So we've got this bargain that seems beneficial to the state or the law enforcement authorities and indeed to the public at large because they 
they get to achieve retribution and deterrence by much cheaper means than lengthy confinement, it's actually attractive, marginally attractive to the prisoner too. And if he doesn't want to, of course, he doesn't have to do it. Um, he can stay in jail. Uh, you know, he can he can stay in jail. It's just only if he requests it, and if we make absolutely certain that you know it's, it's as it's, it's he's he's totally competent to 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 make that decision. Only then will we let him. Uh, but of course, we wouldn't dream of putting in place such a system. Now we don't even have this problem of he gave gives his consent at one moment in time and later on he regrets it. And when we let him back out of it, the way it happened in the kidney club, now it's, you know, when we administer the treatment, we only administer it if at that very moment he is happy to have that happen in lieu of having to serve his 30-year sentence. And we wouldn't. We, we'd, uh, you know, we, we would balk at such an arrangement. Um which is, you know, might. some of us might not. Some of us might not. Sorry. Some of us might not, but some of us might not balk at it. But the law balks at it. The law, the law says uh, this is not. It's not. We don't do this. Yeah. It's yeah. not a legislative solution, say in the United States, and um, it is similar to the first case as an economist looking at it because it's a voluntarily agreed on mutually beneficial exchange, mm-hmm. which is the. Standard phrase we would use for something that makes both parties better off. And in general, exchange that makes both parties better off without deception, as you said, or without coercion or duress. Uh, it's voluntary. Why would we not allow such things? But And it's worth, it's worth it's underlining just, that it's, it's in some sense even more mysterious than the kidney club because it's not advanced consent. It's consent at the right. very moment. We'll only say we will only start this treatment no right now if you're okay. So it's, this is not somebody who later on regrets and tries to back out. It's somebody who at this very moment says, please do it. And yet we say, we won't. And even if we said halfway through, you can change your mind. Yeah, we'll yeah, put we you back him, in jail. We'll stop. Right. We still we don't allow that either. Right. So the, the third – so that's a, that seems perverse in that both sides would seem to prefer that outcome and that it doesn't happen. The same is true of the kidney club. What's the um, – talk about the triage cycle, yeah. which is even uh, even more dramatic. Uh, now, be, before I do that, I just want to g- briefly allude to this point you made. You say some of us wouldn't. Uh, many people who are – would describe themselves as you know very libertarian in their outlook on freedom of contract – and are inclined to enforce lots of agreement where other less libertarian-minded people uh, would, would, would strongly hesitate. Even they, I think, are led to hesitate when they encounter the, the voluntary torture example. Not everyone, but many. Um, so, you know, I, to, to my mind, that kind of underlines the, the, um, the puzzle that, that lurks there, that, that even people who feel strongly committed to freedom of contract on, on some of these examples, especially this one, um, Without quite being able to explain why, uh, think they're not quite willing to 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 live up to their abstract commitment. And there's some, yeah, there's something even I find it some I'm somewhat uncomfortable about it. And uh, I think I'm going to say maybe I think part of the reason is we worry that there could be a lack of judgment there, perhaps mm-hmm. that someone under that un- unattractive uh, choice. It's uh, related to Mike Munger's uh, concept of you voluntary. It's a person who's clearly under duress no matter what. Even if they enter into it freely, it's it's such an unattractive option. To call it a free choice seems seems somehow um, perverse in itself. And um, 
And we're saying this, by the way, without even adding the possibility of televising the torture, mm-hmm. which could in, could uh, both increase the deterrent effect mm-hmm. and add entertainment for sadistic and cruel people. So I, I say that with tongue in cheek. Uh, yes, I know. Perverse right. tongue in my perverse cheek. Okay, but, but you let's know, move you on know, to on the this, – On this point, uh, whether this is – maybe there's something inherently uh, – there's some sort of inherent duress in the situation. Uh, I, one thing that makes me – strongly hesitate to think of it that way is that you know it's it's not particularly different uh, functionally speaking from medical treatment here we've got someone who as it were is paralyzed or limited in his mobility and uh, or at least the situation is not very different from somebody who is limited in his mobility and was offered a very painful medical treatment that will uh, you know solve that problem that will treat it we wouldn't describe that as as a case of inherent duress, and you know this is functionally very very similar. Um, doesn't dissolve that intuition altogether, but that's a but, very you know, that's a very clever it. argument. Yeah. It's a very clever argument. I, I, I'm not sure. I, it may prove too much. It may explain why we're so comfortable with third party medical payment that uh, I think has some perverse effects on its own. Oh, that's interesting. That, um, that stops us from having to endure watching people under duress make monetary decisions. So, uh-huh. uh, no, they're uh, true, true. There, there, there. There's, there's, there's uh, that that further wrinkle. Uh, well, all right. So let me let me turn to the the this this triage example you alluded to, which is spectacular. A, well, it's a highly artificial scenario I construct because, despite the fact that it's so super artificial and you know super unrealistic, uh, like. Many unrealistic examples, uh, I think it has the virtue of making more salient something that the more realistic examples tend to hide. Uh, what I imagine is a case of a triage in an, in an emergency room. Um, initially, I imagine uh, two people arrive. Um, they, uh, they've both just been involved uh, in a car accident. Uh, one of them I call Al, the other one I call Chloe. Uh, they've had this car accident, and Al has been severely injured, and the way he's been injured is he needs immediate treatment or else he's going to lose the use of both of his legs. And then there's Chloe, who has been injured uh, much less seriously. In fact, um, the injury is just one that would um, affect the use of her hands, mostly the use of her little finger, which actually will be a big deal to her because she's a passionate hobby pianist and and uh, any reduction in her manual dexterity is greatly going to affect her enjoyment of her own uh, piano playing. Um, if I told you nothing more and the question arose, who's going to get treated first? Is is Al going to be treated first and uh, or, or, or it, it, whoever will assume that whoever is going to be treated second is going to you know suffer some consequences from the accident al might in fact if he's not treated first but second might lose the use of his two legs uh, chloe for that matter might suffer a significant reduction in her manual dexterity so it's a big deal who gets treated first and if i told you nothing more then it's kind of obvious that uh, both law and morality would dictate that the only doctor who happens to be on duty um, would immediately devote all of his attention to to Al, uh, the more the more seriously injured. Um, now I'm going to add a wrinkle. Uh, I'm going to assume that Al and Chloe uh, are a couple. They're married. Uh, Al is 
incredibly devoted to Chloe, is incredibly concerned uh, about what how unhappy she would be if her if her piano playing ability suffered, is so concerned that he absolutely insists the doctor treat Chloe first, even at the you know cost that will entail to him, Al. Um, you know, needless to say, the doctor is going to hesitate initially and not want to do this. Um, but if, if Al is absolutely insistent, uh, and if it's clear that Al and Chloe both, you know, they both want this, uh, well, and he's probably going to do it, and we probably think that he ought to do it. For that matter, if Al just refuses treatment, you know, that just leaves Chloe anyway. So that's where we're going to end up. He's going to treat the less serious injury first under these, under these circumstances. Now let's add one further wrinkle. Let me introduce a third character named uh, B. Uh, B has also suffered an injury, and her injury happens to be midway between the most serious injury of Al and the less least serious injury of Chloe. Let's say it's the sort of injury where if she's not treated, she loses, well, we'll be super schematic about it, she loses the use of uh, one of her legs. Um, now what's the doctor to do? Um, because as soon as he's about to treat Chloe, uh, B pipes up and says, um, you know, I've got a much more serious injury. I've got to use the, lose the use of my leg. Uh, surely you're not going to treat Chloe with her trivial finger injury before you treat me with my serious leg injury. And the doctor says, well, you've got a point. So, yes, uh, I'll, I'll redirect my efforts from Chloe to you. At which point Al says, hey, but I've got a much more serious injury than, than, than B, so you got to treat me first. I've got this two-leg injury. At which point the doctor says, well, okay, you've got a point. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. So as he's about to treat Al, Al then says, but you know, uh, I understand I'm entitled to treatment, treatment priority, but frankly, I would prefer you devoted your attention to Chloe. That's what I would prefer, and that's what Chloe would prefer. Uh, at which point B pipes up, yeah, that's not, I, I, I don't want that. I can't live with that. If she's going to get treated, Chloe, then surely I have priority over her. Uh, at which point Al says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not going to get treated no matter what. It's either me or it's Chloe. So you're kind of out of it. Uh, and as between me and Chloe, you know, the only relevant parties here, we both prefer that Chloe get treated. So so that's what should happen, insists Al. Well, is that what should happen? Because even if, having said all this, the doctor decides to treat Chloe, um, my guess is we, we still think, uh, gee, uh, um, can she really be treated ahead of, ahead of B, who, is, who has this more serious injury? And so we get into a, we've, we're kind of in a funny cycle. Whichever, whichever uh, patient the doctor chooses to treat, there seems to be another patient where we can argue he's got a superior claim. Seems like B has a superior claim to Chloe because of her more serious injury. Seems like Al has a more serious claim to being treated because his injury is more serious than B's. And for that matter, Chloe, it seems, has a superior claim to treatment because both Al and Chloe want it that way. And, you know, it's, it seems like that's 
the kind of contract that we usually respect. It benefits both parties. It doesn't injure a third party. We'll assume they both know what they're doing, that neither of them is incompetent, uh, even if Al seems a little maybe too besotted with Chloe. Um, and yet, uh, And yet there seems to be a genuine problem. It's not that we would rule the possibility of of going through with Al's wishes, uh, absurd or totally out of bounds. But the important thing to realize is here, we actually have concerns here about a bargain, a mutually beneficial bargain between two people that has no bad effects on third parties and that is concluded between seemingly competent parties. Um, so at least in this particular context, we, 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 we have a compelling situation um, in which uh, in which uh, freedom of contract doesn't seem to prevail. Now, uh, well, it's, it's yeah. There is a there there is a uh, aspect of this stylized example that that needs to be mentioned, which is the there's no property rights here for the parties. That is, we don't, and this is part of what you're saying, of course, mm-hmm. is that Al, by virtue of having the worst illness, the worst condition, does not – he doesn't get dibs. He doesn't get property rights that elect, that he could sell or give away. And in particular, there are no prices in general, period, right? So we don't say, well, whoever pays the most gets the medical treatment. We do in many markets. Mm-hmm. But in medical markets, in a triage situation in the ER, mm-hmm. uh, or to take a, a, a weird example that would seem to be unrelated but is not – uh, we let people uh, now. We didn't before. We let people give up their place on an airplane to people more desperate to fly when the fl- when the plane is overbooked. Mm-hmm. We essentially mm-hmm. sell that, not not in the way we would might normally do it, mm-hmm. uh, but but this this is the example. And it, some of these examples that come up are about places where property rights are either ill defined or, or explicitly ruled out, and that's what this case is uh, to to this economist's ear. Uh, but what, what's clever about what you do, and this is what I want to turn to next, which I think is just brilliant, is that you recognize that this discomforting example, this unpleasant example, has a, an analog to voting cycling mm-hmm. and problems in uh, public and collective choice. Mm-hmm. So lay out the case for Explain what the voting paradox is. We've talked about it before on Econ Talk, but explain it again for listeners who forgotten or didn't hear it, and we'll apply it to uh, the Trier cycle. Yeah, um, I wonder if maybe if I could just back up a little um, on this issue of of, of property rights, um, which it's 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 unclear what what role it plays in this example, um, um, because you could even if you even if you try to inject property rights into the example, uh, that is, you initially try to kind of make it less of a dilemma by thinking, well, uh, Al has a priority, and that priority is like a property right, and if he wants to alienate that or give it away to Chloe and have her possess it, that's kind of, you know, that's what you can do with property rights. Uh, why shouldn't he be able to, to do it? And when one phrases it that way, one initially thinks, well, that kind of resolves the case. Now it no longer looks so unjust for Chloe to be treated ahead of B because she has this property right that she inherited from Al. 
Now, what makes the property right argument um, more difficult uh, is that in general, the law takes the position that, you know, when you're in a case of a hard choice, when some person is about to suffer some significant detriment, uh, you know, a, there's a hiker starving in the woods and the only way he can survive is by breaking into a cabin and helping himself to its, you know, to the foodstuffs there. He's free to do that because, you know, life is more important than property. So similarly here, one might say, well, yeah, she's got this property right to treatment, but, uh, you know, property rights can be invaded for more important reasons and B is in a position to invade it for more important reasons. So her argument against Chloe would seem to survive even characterizing this as a, as a property right. Um, so it's, it's not clear that, that the dilemma can be can be dissolved by by uh, by simply classifying it as a property right. Although you know it, it's maybe um, I take the point in light okay. of the law. I, yeah. I, see, I see that point, and I and and of course the law though might require the the backpacker or hiker to compensate the true, the, uh, true the person. True. So it's to me it, it's a little like uh, we may get to it later, but you talk about loopholes in the book, obviously. Mm-hmm. There's a law against speeding. If you're you have a medical emergency and you race to the hospital above the speed limit, you'll eventually get an escort if you're lucky. Not mm-hmm. a not a ticket, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But carry on. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, yeah. There's this. Um, we the the uh, usual context in which uh, economists most think about cycling is a is a rather different one. Um, although it. Which, which is the the the, um, the problem of voting, uh, and the most notorious illustration of the sort of cycling phenomenon we've encountered in this triage example, the most notorious example that economists think about, especially and political scientists who think about the rules of voting, arises in the context of voting, um, and the voting paradox. I mean, that's its its most clear cut illustration, and that's how people's attention first was drawn to this phenomenon, and it's the following kind of situation. We've got, uh, we've got three candidates, you know, running for a certain position, and the electorate is divided in their preferences between the three candidates, and each of them has a very distinct set of preferences with regard to the, the three candidates. Um, the uh, you know one one group wants candidate Al ahead of candidate B ahead of candidate Chloe to you know stay within those keep keep those characters alive um, and then there's a second uh, constituency and they most would like B and their second choice would be Chloe and their third choice would be Al um, and then there's a, a Third uh, group, uh, they would they would most like Chloe, and if they can't have Chloe, they'd like Al, and if they can't have Al, they'd like uh, B. Um, so everybody, and you know, let's assume that the constituency is uh, you know sort of one third of all voters have the first set of preferences, one set of voters have the second set of preferences, one set of voters have the third set of preferences. In other words, everybody is first choice with one third of the electorate, second choice with another third of the electorate, third choice, 
uh, with another third. If, if we, every third choice with another third of the electorate. Um, now, what, what's puzzling about it is if we were to run these people against each other in a simple, you know, not, not, not having all three compete with each other, but have, any, have, have two of them um, run against each other, uh, then we'd find that, um, you know, Al is preferred by two-thirds of all voters over B, and B is preferred by two-thirds of all voters over Chloe, and one might therefore think, well, all right, since a two-thirds majority prefers Al to B and a two-thirds majority prefers B to Chloe, obviously society one likes Al better than Chloe for this position. But if they were then going to check and run Al and Chloe against each other, they'd find that actually Chloe is preferred by two-thirds of all voters over Al. So we get this odd cycle here whereby, you know, each candidate is loses out to some other candidate by a two-thirds, not a trivial margin. Uh, and it's very, not, just to emphasize, this, this is not a specific example. It's right. more general than this, unfortunately, that majority rule in pairwise comparisons does not lead to a single outcome. And exactly. this is appalling and just, and just horrifying when most people see it. They actually, when I think, literally don't believe it. Yeah. That's certainly such my reference. on first encountering it. it was, I see such it, such reverence for majority it. rule. Yeah, yeah. such reverence for majority rule that obviously this is the way, a good way to make decisions. What could be more fair? What could be better? And yet majority rule, and I, I never thought about this until I read your book, it's really, uh, it's rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, it's, it's totally um, that. It's rock beats scissors, scissors beats paper, but rock doesn't beat paper. Paper beats rock, and this non-transitivity yeah. is um, very unattractive, and a lot of political scientists obviously have explained some of the more perverse aspects of the political process as a response to this in this non this non transitivity or more importantly a better way to say it is order matters yeah and so if you don't have if you don't restrict you end up in an endless cycle with constantly without any reliable outcome like your poor doctor in the triage yeah, room exactly right and so a lot of peculiar aspects of of voting and, and institutions around the political process have been it's been argued are there to avoid this kind of endless uh, spinning your wheels mm -hmm. and uh, but you apply it to the law which is very clever so carry on yeah now one might wonder okay so there's there's cycling going on in both these contexts but you know is there anything that connects them other than the fact that we run into cycles in both cases is there some some deeper reason why we should run into cycling with voting and also run into cycling in this example, which doesn't really have to do anything with voting. Nobody is casting a vote. Um, uh, and, and the connection is, 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 is kind of interesting and I think uh, illuminating. Um, it, you know, the, 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 the reason we get cycling and voting has to do with the fact that we are combining the preferences of different voters. And, you know, it was starting with this example and, you know, expanding on it and, and following up on all sorts of questions raised by it, economists uh, and political scientists were then able to show that one runs into this cycling problem with just about or some version of it with uh, just about any voting system that any situation in which we try to combine the preferences of different voters. 
after thinking about the situation for a while, or indeed rather quickly, the people working on this recognize that this isn't just a problem about voting, but that there are many other situations in which we do something quite analogous to voting, even though there are not several voters involved. That is, even if we have a single person trying to make a decision, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to take into account a variety of different considerations. That often works as though we were trying to, you know, aggregate the preferences of a series of voters into one outcome. So, for instance, you know, I'm, I'm uh, trying to decide uh, which of several cars to buy and, uh, you know, there are a variety of criteria I focus on having to do with its look, having to do with its price, having to do with its safety. And from each point of view, different cars fare better than other cars. And so I rank them each with regard to each of these dimensions. And then I have to somehow combine all of these dimensions into a final ranking between the cars. Well, now that starts to sound a lot like trying to rank candidates who are running for a certain position in light of the different preferences that different, different voters have for them. And it therefore stands to reason that we're going to run into some very similar sorts of problems, in particular cycling, when we're making what people often call multi-criterial decisions, decisions based on the multiplicity of criteria. And in a sense, that's what the law is doing very often. And it's in particular what's going on in this triage case. We're trying to take into account a set of different criteria, each of which would rank the, the patients along different dimensions. There's kind of the abstract need dimension reflected in our judgment about the severity of injury. And then there's another set of considerations having to do with their preferences, in particular the fact that you know one of them or both two of them want uh, want want, a, uh, want treatment not to follow the abstract severity of the injuries, but their preferences about and their affection for each other. Um, and when we're trying to aggregate these two different considerations, that's like trying to aggregate the preferences of different voters. And just as that can give rise to cycling, this can give rise to cycling too. So it's not an accident that we run into cycling in both contexts. It really is the underlying mechanism that gives rise to it turns out to be the same. Yeah, it's about making a choice, a decision, when that decision is multidimensional, right? Exactly. And that's, but the applying it to an individual, I mean, is really remarkable. I, when you think about, uh, you know, the irrelevant alternative problem that people might change their preferences when a choice is offered that they're not going to take. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is is weird. It's, yeah, it's very unsettling. Maybe um, should I should I maybe say something about the irrelevant yeah, alternatives sure. and how that relates yeah, to go cycling? Ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and then the the killer amendment, which is the example used in the book, which is right. has a similar flavor to it. Right. It's um, there's. I mean, cycling obviously is is one kind of disturbing perversity, whether one encounters it in voting or whether one encounters it in law. Uh, now it's interesting to see what people, what the initial reaction was that people had when they saw that majority voting could lead to cycling. Indeed, uh, I mean, already in the 18th century, when the voting paradox was 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 uh, first noticed uh, by two two French uh, social scientists, Condorcet and Borda, um, one of them then concluded from this that you know majority voting should be uh, you know abandoned, and he proposed an alternative method. And the alternative method was uh, he suggested that every voter rank his candidates. 
and that we then um, uh, just, you know, calculate the average rank for each candidate. And that should be the way we should proceed. And he pointed out that if we did that, we would never run into cycles. Um, and I mean, we might run into ties and then maybe have to use some random device or some other way of dealing with, with, with ties. So for instance, in the case of the voting paradox where everybody comes in, every a third of the people prefer one candidate first and third of the people another candidate first and so on. If we applied his method to that, we would find that the three candidates are tied, which is actually kind of sensible because they're actually all three of them in, a, in an equivalent position. But he thought that that would be the method we ought to use. Uh, and we wouldn't ever run into cycles, he gleefully pointed out. Which, and which, then, which I should add is it, which is weird as that is that they would be tied. There's something a lot more attractive that because if, about that because if you think about the the Albie Chloe election, mm-hmm. if you if you are in charge of which order the pairwise comparisons take place, you can determine the winner. Which is much more disturbing than saying, well, we'll flip a coin for the three people. Basically, you're saying the person who has agenda control says, well, it doesn't matter. Let's vote on B and Chloe first, and then the winner faces Al. That will let um, Al win, whereas if I did it a different way, I can pick pick the winner no matter – just by choosing the order. Right. And that's the that it's not just the fact that it's somewhat disturbing that that the order matters, it's that it's even worse. The person in charge of determining the order determines the winner. Yeah, and that, that's it. actually quite right and it's a very crucial thing to realize that in some sense uh, it's not just cycling per se that's that's disturbing, it's the underlying possibility that once you've got cycling Basically, you can produce whichever outcome you want by just, you know, lining up the candidates in the, in yep. the, in the appropriate order. And that now, anyway. uh, when we now go back to the, to the fix that Borda had suggested, what he didn't realize and what his uh, rival, as it were, Condorcet, uh, equally gleefully pointed out is that although he had avoided cycling, he had not avoided this possibility of manipulation. Uh, because this method of doing average ranks has the following awkward property. If we have all three candidates present at the same time, you know, they all will be tied. But suppose one of the candidates, we remove one of the candidates, or it turns out he's dead, or for some other reason actually disqualified. And we rerun the election according to Borda's method about ranking the candidates, Well, then suddenly now um, they're no longer tied because now we just have two candidates left and one of them will get two thirds. It's basically like a majority election now. One of them has two thirds of the support and the other has just one third of the support. So by simply removing one candidate, um, two two, two candidates who were in an equal position before are now in a very unequal position and one of them prevails. Uh, Voting theorists to underlying the, 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 the absurdity of the situation, say this is almost like, you know, somebody going into a restaurant and uh, he's choosing between uh, chicken and steak and he chooses, uh, he chooses the steak and then he's informed that there's also fish on the menu and then he says, well, now, now I'm going to have the chicken instead. Um, that seems absurd and yet this border method seems like that because the relative position of two candidates is strongly affected by whether a third candidate is present or not. 
And it can be affected even more dramatically than in my example. In my example, they were tied when the third candidate is present. And when he's not present, one of them prevails. But there are cases where it's, um, uh, you know, where, where to begin with, one of them is ahead. And then a candidate is removed and the one who is ahead now is behind. Uh, you know, and this, this is sometimes called the, the violation of the independence of irrelevant alternatives, or it makes an independent, an irrelevant alternative uh, determinant of, uh, of what the relative ranking of two possibilities is. And of course, once we've got that, we still have the possibility of manipulation, not manipulation in the way it occurred before, but just by throwing in an irrelevant candidate who's not going to win anyway, but just by making him, you know, part of the race, as it were, we can completely reverse the, you know, relative success of the only two, the only two relevant candidates uh, in the race. So manipulation really cannot be removed, or at least it can't be removed by this method. About 200 years later, then someone investigated the question, well, can we construct a system that doesn't have these manipulation perversities that doesn't have the dependence on irrelevant alternatives that doesn't have cycling and uh, you know the famous economist Kenneth Arrow uh, made the startling demonstration that that's impossible it's going to be either cycling or dependence on irrelevant alternatives basically you know, he made some very simple background assumptions that are not worth going into basically that this is a truly collective decision as opposed to you know being a dictatorship um, but once we make those those very elementary background assumptions, um, it turns out that one of these perversities, either cycling or dependence on irrelevant alternatives, is going to be present, and that therefore this possibility of manipulation is also going to be ubiquitously uh, present. And that's uh, why that's why after Kenneth Arrow published uh, uh, his book in 1957 on collective choice, that's why. From 1957 onward, most decisions were returned to the private sector because collective choice obviously is a cesspool. No, I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, what I want to turn to, yeah. but it is it is a startling, depressing truth yeah. that uh, Democrats, Republicans, um, people who love democracy, people who love republics, people who love everything other than dictatorships have to confront mm-hmm. that collective choice is a lot messier than we might have thought given that majority rule often seems so straightforward. It's not. Right. But I want to, now yeah. let's turn to this question of what's this have to do with the law? You, you've shown a parallel. Mm-hmm. Is the fact that the law rules out the kind of uh, – so your suggestion, going back to the triage, to the, mm-hmm. to the emergency room, is that Al will get treated. He will not be allowed to cede his rights to, to Chloe. B will not be allowed to override Chloe. It's just going to be Al, done. Do you see that as analogous to what happens in certain voting uh, regimes where certain uh, opportunities for manipulation are not allowed? And And does that apply to the other examples you gave of the torture of the prisoner and the kidney club uh, non-enforcement of the contract? Yeah, I don't think it's the – I don't think it's particularly the aversion to manipulation uh, that – I mean, I, I think in a situation like triage, there will be a strong temptation. I don't know that it's, it will necessarily always be carried out, but I think there will be a strong inclination to say to Al, uh, either you get treated or, you know, B is going to get treated, but you can't just, you know, make this bargain with Chloe or 
this Pareto optimal arrangement with Chloe, whereby you alienate or allocate your right to treatment to her. There will be a strong temptation not to allow him to do that. Um, now, one could. It's not. It's not that it's you know. Uh, it's 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 absurd to to uh, you know give way to that preference, um, but uh, but whenever when 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 whenever a uh, a cycle like that lurks or presents itself at least very starkly, well there'll be a I mean, we will will there's some there's one of several plausible principles that will have to be rejected, and when the competing principles are are these are the ones we've got in play in the triage case i one could well imagine the uh, the you know the freedom of contract principle losing out doesn't have to um but it it's uh, one, one 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 could see how uh, you know the 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 the, 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 the there, there would be significant pressure to break the cycle in that way um, and I think that pressure exists in a lot of other examples that are not transparently like the triage example, but that have sufficient similarity with it. In particular, there's this argument that B is able to make in the triage case, which we can see essentially being made successfully in a lot of other different contexts. Basically, what she's able to say to the doctor who is thinking about whom to treat She's able to say, look, I can see giving up my one leg for the sake of having the two legs of Al treated. Uh, that's a justifiable sacrifice. I can't see being asked to make that sacrifice for the sake of Chloe's finger. Even if Al wants that to be the case, even if, in a sense, I'm not disadvantaged because one way or another, I'm not going to get treated. Either Al gets treated or Chloe gets treated. But, you know, let's make it more extreme. Suppose he, he, he wants to alienate his right to treatment for, you know, uh, uh, playing chess with the doctor instead during that time. You know, surely I'm not, I can't be asked yeah. to make a significant <laughs> sacrifice for, for something as trivial as that. And when we he now pays the doctor sufficient amount to, uh, I love, you know, I have to concede, I said earlier about property rights, but the yeah. truth is, most people are very uncomfortable with the idea, get Al out of the picture. Chloe comes into the, into the emergency room and says, I'll pay a million dollars to save my finger. And, and B says, well, I only have $20. Most people would say, well, that shouldn't be relevant. Mm-hmm. We don't like the idea of property rights. And, and, you know, my, as a property rights loving economist, I would say, well, that's why there'd be more than one doctor if in a real mm-hmm. situation mm-hmm. with more, with more freedom to choose and not these rules, et cetera. But the truth is, is that we are uncomfortable. The idea that, that Al would, would pay the doctor to not operate on any of them. Forget Al. I come in mm-hmm. and say, doctor, I know you've got these three people. Here's here's $200,000. Play chess with me for an hour, and we'll let these other people all go their own ways. Mm-hmm. That also is repugnant. <laughs> uh, well, let's return to this problem about, about specific performance. Um, we um, – let's, let's think about what we're really doing when we give someone the right to specifically enforce um, a bargain – on the basis of advanced consent. The uncontroversial context in which we're essentially able to use force, in which we're able to exert force on someone, is when he is trying to 
do something to our physical body or maybe to property that is directly in our possession. Under those circumstances, we're able to use, you know, physical self-help remedies. If it's our body, even deadly force, if it's just our property, well, we can use some force, but not deadly force. In addition, it's one of those situations where the criminal law steps in. Uh, we can you know, summon the authorities for, to provide protection. We can summon the authorities to provide punishment for any invasion of, of our body or of property in our possession. Um, when we try to, when we ask for specific performance, we're really asking for the right to treat a promise the way we ordinarily are entitled to treat our bodies and the way we're entitled to treat property in our possession. We ask to be able to use the same self-help measures to implement it. We ask again to be able to call on the authorities the way we do to protect our body. We might even try to be able to punish criminally the non-compliance with such a promise. The question is why, why shouldn't we be able to do that? Uh, well, in a sense, we're now trying to arrange it by a voluntary arrangement, by a contract that we enter into uh, in the context of the kidney club or in some other context. We're trying to ask the authorities like the doctor to treat a lesser interest um, that we happen to care about a lot as though it were a greater interest. Just as, the, just as um, Al is asking for the doctor to treat Chloe's finger injury as though it were as serious and had as much priority as his two-leg injury, we are, when we're trying to protect promissory interests with self-help, we're asking society to treat that interest as being equivalently serious as uh, a threat of a physical injury to our body and to our property. And, um, well, uh, you know, one, one just, just as B might object to that, um, the person who is being asked to treat this lesser sort of interest as being as serious might similarly balk, might similarly balk for being able to, being asked to make a sacrifice uh, that is commensurate with a more serious interest, like the two-leg injury and like your body and like your property, being asked to make that sacrifice now for the sake of a much lesser interest, namely a promissory interest. Could be a promissory interest that we value highly, but it frequently happens that something we, va we value very highly, we in fact have a low interest in. It's this peculiar phenomenon that we often have a high interest in something for which we have, sorry, we have a low interest in something that we have a high preference for that leads to this oddity, this inability to, to strike a bargain we want to strike. Um, so I, don't, I, didn't quite, I didn't quite follow that. So give me, let's take either the, the kidney club or the painter who's promised to paint the portrait, Where, where's the conflict in the principles that's akin to the triage cycle principles that are at stake? The pre, in the triage cycle, it's, there's, sort of, there's two principles. There's the worse injuries should be treated before 
lesser injuries. Mm -hmm. And then there's, if you have something, a mutually beneficial exchange, we should allow it. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the triage cycle, we argue, we, the law, you argue, argue, argues that the lesser, the worst injury principle should dominate the mutual beneficial exchange between Al and Chloe, and therefore Al should be treated and B is out of the picture. Mm -hmm. How Mm -hmm. does that apply? I don't see how that applies to the a kidney club or the painter who wants to uh, renege on his promise of painting my portrait. Well, the painter, the painter essentially is saying, um, or uh, two parties to the agreement essentially say, well, you know, we, we would like the promissory interest that the other party has in my painting the painting or um, giving up whatever else it is that I've promised. We want that to be treated uh, as though it were already property in the promisee's possession. We want that to be treated as though it were an invasion of the victim's uh, body. Uh, With the same level of seriousness, they ought to be able to demand from the rest of society or indeed from anyone whatsoever the same level of respect for that interest that they ordinarily get for their body. Just as Al is able to say, Because I have treatment priority for my two legs, I would like to substitute for that uh, Chloe's treatment of her finger. I want that to be treated as being, to be viewed as being as serious as my interest in my two legs because I happen to value that more than my two legs. I'm entitled to the treatment of my two legs. I value the treatment of her finger more than the treatment of my two legs. Therefore, I would like her finger injury to be treated as uh, as seriously as my two-leg injury. In return, I forego the treatment of my two legs. And so how's that work? Let's let's have mm-hmm. – I'm the I'm, – I'm the uh, dignitary, and you're the artist, mm-hmm. and I've hired you to paint my portrait, and mm-hmm. I'm going to hang it in my in my um, my estate in um, Kensington. Mm-hmm. Um, how, where's the analogy here? Help me out. Yeah, uh, he is uh, the, the the painter is saying, you know, ordinarily uh, I can't be. Uh, if if i if i if if the 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 only the only circumstance under which i can be subjected to um significant physical force or intrusion by this other guy the guy whose portrait i'm supposed to paint is ordinarily if i do something to his body or if i steal something from him um those are the only circumstances ordinarily in which he's able to use physical force against me or to call in the sheriff to force me to stop or even to punish me. Um, If I do other more minor things to him, such as not keep an ordinary promise, an ordinary promise to sell something to him, uh, he can't use physical force against me. Uh, He can't call the authorities to force me to comply. We're not, not, not now talking about a case in which he makes a specific promise, uh, promise to specifically enforce. Just in an ordinary contract, uh, the painter says, if I were to promise to sell him something and then I don't follow through, he can't say, well, that's, I, I've got a right to this stuff, and uh, since you're not giving it to me, I'm going to take it. We say, uh, your right is your, you, the strength of your claim to whatever it is that's been promised to you, 
is not at the same level as the strength of your claim to your kidney or the strength of your claim even to property that happens to be in your possession. And therefore, you can't use force to implement that right, to you know vindicate that claim. And you can't even ask the authorities to help you to vindicate it, except you can ask for damages, but you can't do anything more. Uh, and you can't have me punished or thrown in jail for not honoring this promissory right that you've got. Now, what you're trying to do is you're trying to arrange things in return for um, paint, or, or rather I, the painter, try to arrange things by, uh, I accept that money in return, I accept that money from you, and in return, I tried to make this promissory right you've got, we tried by mutual agreement to make it such that the promissory right will be treated by society at large, and for that matter, by me, as though it were your kidney still inside your body, as though it were some property that you possessed. When Al is trying to alienate his priority to Chloe, Chloe is, both he and Chloe are basically asking that something that a weaker claim as a result of an agreement that they've struck be treated like a much stronger claim, like a much stronger priority. And the same sort of arrangement the painter and the um, client are trying to strike when they want to set it up in such a way that this promissory claim that the client has is treated like a much stronger claim one that can be vindicated by, you know, by self-help, by something equivalent to self-defense, even though it's a promissory right that ordinarily can't be treated in that way. And as in the triage case, you can't artificially, as it were, inflate a certain claim um, into a much stronger one by mutual arrangement. You can't do that here. So let me see if let me see if I understand. I'm I'm still a little bit confused. Sure. So uh, I hire you to paint my portrait. Uh, you show up at my house. You sit. I sit down. You start painting, and after fifteen thirty minutes, whatever it is, you say, "You know, this just isn't working for me. I've got a lot on my mind. I really don't have time to paint this right now. I've got other things I care about more. I just have to back out of the deal." Mm-hmm. And I I go to the law, and I say. Uh, you didn't keep your promise, and therefore uh, the law should use the threat of, of force or jail and and force you to to paint paint my picture. Mm-hmm. So that's one principle. The principle mm-hmm. is contract should be enforced. Mm-hmm. Is the second so what's the is the second principle then that um, the enforcement of the contract has an immoral side to it because you're equating. The painting of a portrait with the violation of property or, or person? Is that what you're claiming are the two principles that conflict here? Um, yeah. It's you've got um, you you have um, let's see if there's an here's, well, this this may be another way to 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 make the point. Um, suppose uh, people wanted to arrange it um that such that um, you know we 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 all have um, think for the moment of the right of self-defense, 
which is very similar to the right to specifically enforce, or at least it's that analogy that I'm playing off of. Um, the right of self-defense is, you know, ordinarily limited in these various ways. It, you you get to use a lot of force for your body, less force for property, and no force at all for, for, for lesser kinds of interests. But suppose people want to modify that by agreement. Um, they want to set it up so that you know, they, they, they allow more force to be used to, for lesser interests and, or one person says, uh, uh, I, um, suppose somebody so takes, I put on, I put on, how about this? Yeah. I put on my front door, um, warning, if you steal from me, uh, I'm going to shoot you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shoot with deadly force. I, you know, there's this, these classic cases in the law of, yeah, a tripwire that's going sure. to spring, guns. Yeah. spring a, a gun that's going to either shoot me in the legs or shoot me in the heart. Mm-hmm. Shoot in the legs is a, is one issue, but shooting in the heart for somebody who's stealing uh, a phone is not considered just. We'd all agree that's unjust. A person mm-hmm. shouldn't be killed for stealing a phone. But I post that outside my house, right? I say, mm-hmm. if you come in here, you're at risk of deadly force, and the person enters voluntarily. Yeah, let me is let that, me actually. Is that your point? It, it, it's it's a nice example, and there's a there's a version of the example, in some sense, makes the point even more salient that I sometimes use using class to make the same point. Uh, so let's let's not make it uh, in uh, breaking into a house, uh, but it's often these things are clear when we actually use you know physical force on someone's body. So suppose one person approaches another, and he says. Um, uh, you know, you, I, I notice you're a bodybuilder, and I've 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 been told that that people who have uh, who do that have these ironclad stomachs, and even if they're hit hard in the stomach, you know, it, it, they can bear it and they don't flinch, and it, and 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 they don't get much injured. Uh, I'd like to try that out. Um, and the bodybuilder says, uh, pff, okay. Strange request, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm all right with that for a certain sum of money. And then the other guy asks, "Well, how much?" And he says, um, five hundred thousand dollars." And uh, the other guy says, "It's ridiculous. I, that that that's way too high. That's too much. And I want to pay five hundred thousand." And the bodybuilder says, uh, "Suit yourself. If you want to do it? Five hundred thousand. Otherwise, I don't give you permission." At which point, the other guy takes aim. Hits him in the stomach. Bodybuilder says, "Oh, okay. I guess you owe me five hundred thousand." He says, "No, I don't. Um, you know, uh, go ahead, sue me for the tort of hitting you, and you'll you'll get some money. You won't get five hundred thousand for that." And then I ask, "Well, shouldn't he?" Um, and then people initially say, "Well, uh, yeah, of." of of course he should. I mean, he can name his price for being hit, and the guy chose to hit him, so of course he owes him 500000 And then I follow up with an example that's kind of like yours. Uh, you know, I imagine somebody driving around with a car, that the sign of which says, you know, you dent this car, you pay a million dollars. And if somebody dents the car, you know, intentionally or not, do we then think that he owes a million dollars? No, we think he owes whatever amount we think somebody is entitled to as a you know, matter of tort law, not as a matter of contract law, for the injury that he suffers. So we've got this other scale, as it were. We've got the scale of tort law and of criminal law that rates, that values things at a certain level, and that 
it seems to determine how much we get by way of damages uh, and how much we get for an injury or how much we get for a trespass, you know, like the injury against like the hitting of the bodybuilder. And then there's this alternative set, the, you know, the, the, the voluntary agreement, the contract set of principles that, that follow preferences. And it's the combination of these two, the ranking, the ranking principles of tort law and of criminal law, um, under which we say you don't get a million dollars should be because your car is dented just because you put up a sign. You can unilaterally modify the valuation scale that determines how protected your various interests are, that determines how much you know, you can't such you can't suddenly decide I, I value my car so much I and I value it more than my body that therefore I get to use deadly force to defend it against anyone who threatens to damage it. So when it comes to criminal law and tort law, we've got this scale of valuation, very similar to the scale of valuation involved in the, in the emergency room. And then, of course, we've got this other scale of valuation that we use when people strike bargains. And then there are these contexts where the contracts and the tort scales, as it were, are in competition with each other or need to be combined or we need to strike a balance between them. And when we do... Well, one of them loses out, and sometimes it's the contract approach that loses out, as it does in the example of the bodybuilder, and as it sometimes might do in the emergency room, and might do in the case of specific performance. So, it always lose out. I, I should tell- point out. Sorry, go ahead. No, sure, but so for one way to think about this, to keep it in the painter, uh, see if I have this right. Your point about the bodybuilder, which I was really interesting. So I hire you to paint my portrait. I give you, um, I give you a million dollars, mm-hmm. and you show up and you you start to paint the portrait, and you realize you don't want to do it, or you have other things come along, and you say, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it." Here's your million dollars back, mm-hmm. and I say, "But that's not what I want, and that's not what we agreed to. We didn't agree that if you change your mind, you give me back a million dollars. You agreed that you'd accept a million and you'd paint my portrait. So please do so." And so if I take you to court, uh, I will get. One, the court will not let, uh, under threat of torture, that you paint a great portrait of me. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And number two, and this is the subtler thing I think I see now, number two, uh, my damages will not be a million dollars. You will not say, well, obviously, the, the law will not say, obviously, I valued this portrait at least a million. In fact, more than a million, mm-hmm. or I wouldn't have entered into it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the damages are not going to be a million dollars for my foregone pleasure uh, from the from the – the portrait not being uh, executed. So it seems to me you're saying that this point that, that, that there are two principles effectively in what's been lost, right, and that mm-hmm. the law is not going to always invoke the, law, the, the monetary value of the lost thing, whatever it is. Is that, is that least, a good way to say well, it? Uh, or at least the subjective monetary value. It will put monetary value on the matter. Correct. But it, won't, but it won't say just because you happen to value it at that, that's what you're going to get. Um, the claims, it seems, are often, as it were, objectively evaluated. And though that at first sounds paternalistic, it actually isn't particularly um, it's, you know, we can play around with lots of contexts where it'll become apparent that most of the time we make moral judgments. We cannot help. Um, we can't completely go with someone's subjective valuation. Uh, you know, and I always find the law of self-defense particularly compelling in that regard because we wouldn't dream of saying just because somebody values 
something much more than his body. Therefore, he gets to use deadly force to defend it. And instead, we, we take the the objective view, according to which we say it's it still is just, you know, a trinket and you can't use deadly force to defend a trinket. Um, and as soon as we've got that, as soon as we therefore objectively value something, certain things in a way that might therefore deviate from the subjective valuation, as soon as we say people have an interest in something that could be lower than their preference or they have an interest in something that could be higher than their preference. As soon as interests and preferences get out of kilter, we've got a problem with with bargains and with respecting so, bargains. So we're out of we're out of time. I, I want to let's close with a, sure. to try to summarize this. There's a lot of interesting, uh, thought provoking uh, material here in the book is is even richer. But it seems to me that the, what you're trying to argue here is that. There are many things in law or in social norms even that seem – that are perverse, that seem like, well, wait a minute. That, why are we not allowing this thing to happen? And you're arguing that even though there is a principle that suggests that it should happen, we often forget there's another principle that we – that is in conflict and that that principle sometimes gets precedence. And sometimes not, but often gets precedence and that what looks to be a perversion is actually uh, sensible. Is that a, a good way to summarize it? Absolutely. Not, go ahead. Yes. Take your yes. shot. Very good. Right. No, no. I. Yep. That, that puts it nicely. Very nicely. Would you add – want to add anything else? No, I, I, I don't think I could improve on that. That's – that's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, at least I, well, I, I, I gave it my best shot, and uh, but, but this, I think, uh, puts it in a nutshell. Well, the, the book made me think a lot. Uh, as did our conversation, and I think uh, how often it is the case that we as economists, uh, legal scholars, uh, armchair moralists, we think that something is, quote, obviously a good idea, and uh, your book reminds us that sometimes it's, it's a little more complicated. So my guest today has been Leo Katz. His book is Why is the Law So Perverse? Leo, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.